All right, welcome. Um, this is the first uh, of hopefully several installments on the Constitution. I am Mr. Ashworth, and I am going to be doing a reading analysis of the Constitution with you. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to, within this uh, session, talk about the preamble and Article 1. And so um, the Constitution is actually broken up into a preamble seven articles uh, that each have their own topic, and 27 amendments to the Constitution. And so it's broken up into those three parts. And so the beginning then is the preamble. And so the preamble is somewhat like a thesis. It, it explains to us why, you know, why is this document in existence? Why was it created? You know, what is its purpose? What is it supposed to do? And so um, within the uh, preamble, you have the purposes of government laid out. And so automatically starting off, we have we the people, meaning, right, it's going to be a government by the people. We the people are putting forth this document of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. So that is, you know, purpose number one, in order to form a more perfect union, to bring people together, establish justice, have some form of justice system, um, you know, in, in which you discern from right from wrong, uh, and you provide consequences as such, um, ensure domestic tranquility. So domestic, of course, meaning at home, and tranquility meaning peace, right? Peace and safety at home. Provide for the common defense, right? That's our military. Defend from outside invasion, from outside threats. Promote the general welfare, so the government does good, um, you know, and does right by its people. It does for its people. It doesn't do against its people. And so, you know, this comes in the form of such things as, uh, you know, um, unemployment, right? Social Security, um, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, even, you know, education is somewhat considered a welfare program. It's, it's meant to improve the lives of its citizens and secure the blessings of liberty, to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. So securing the blessings of liberty means, you know, to protect rights, right? To protect freedom, to protect, to protect liberty, um, you know, and, and to do so not just for themselves, but for, for all Americans and, and for future generations of Americans as well. So Article 1, uh, you know, was deliberately created for the legislative branch because the founding fathers envisioned uh, the legislative branch as being, you know, the most influential and most important branch. And so, um, you know, that is why they put it as Article 1. And it is actually the longest of the articles um, within the Constitution as well. So Article 1 is the legislative branch. Section 1 of Article 1 essentially establishes the legislative branch as being, at, at the national level, a, a Congress. It creates a Congress, and it states that, you know, that Congress will be made up of two chambers, a Senate and a House of Representatives, one that will be based upon, you know, equal representation, every state has two senators, and one that will be based on the population of the state the House of Representatives. And so this comes about as a result of a compromise that is struck during the um, formation of the Constitution. So the New Jersey plan, 
Right? These were smaller states in terms of population, felt that, you know, we should carry over from the Articles of Confederation this idea of equal representation. Um, under the Articles, every state had one vote. And so what was being argued by New Jersey was that every state should have two senators, regardless of the size of population. Well, states like Virginia, you know, stepped in and said, well, this isn't fair, right? Because we, the more people you have, the more representation you should have. Um, and so, you know, that was the Virginia plan to base representation solely on, on population. The Great Compromise or the Connecticut Compromise uh, is, is the result here as a bicameral legislature, right? A two-house legislature with a Senate and a House of Representatives. And so Section 2 establishes the House of Representatives, and it establishes that those members would be elected every two years. And then it, it sets forth, you know, the qualifications um, for one to be a member of the House. So one must be at least 25 years of age, a citizen of the United States for seven years, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant, oh, sorry, um, who shall be an inhabitant of the state in which he or she shall represent. So you got to live in the state, um, which I always found odd, because I would have figured you'd have to live within the district, um, but you just have to live within the state that you're, you're seeking representation for. Um, and then, you know, further on into Section 2, it discusses exactly what happens, um, you know, in terms of representation, how it's going to be apportioned. And so at least initially, it's 30, for every 30,000 citizens, um, you get one representative, with every state at least guaranteed one representative. That much is true, still. Every state is guaranteed one representative. What's not true, though, is, is you know, the representation is clearly ballooned. And I believe that it's about 600,000 people now. Um, you know, and so that kind of changes with the Reapportionment Act of 1929, which permanently establishes the size of the House of Representatives as 435 members, um, of which, you know, you had to shift those numbers every 10 years according to the census. Um, you know, so you do a population count every 10 years. That's the census, in case you were wondering. The other piece then of, of Section 2, um, you know, discusses what happens when there's a vacancy. Uh, it's entirely up to the state what takes place from there. And so states have varying um, degrees on how they replace, um, you know, resignations or deaths or, or, or vacancies in general before next elections. Um, you know, some states actually hold uh, elections before, you know, before the next election. Um, some states uh, have governors that do the appointments before the next election. So it varies. Um, and then the last piece of Section 2 discusses that the House of Representatives shall choose its um, presiding officer, who happens to be the Speaker of the House, um, and all other offices as well. So, you know, majority leader, minority leader, um, you know, those then, you know, are chosen by the members of the House of Representatives as well. So they choose their leadership. And then, you know, this odd little piece, and shall have the sole power of impeachment. Oh, you know, it just randomly shows up there and, and has nothing to do with anything. But we just want to throw out there that the House of Representatives has the power to impeach. So in an impeachment situation, what that translates into is that the House's job, the House of Representatives' job, is to draw up charges against an elected official, 
uh, and then either pass them or don't, right? If you do pass them, then you have, you know, impeached. Um, if you don't, then you haven't impeached. All right, so more on the impeachment piece in just a, a couple minutes. Getting into Section 3 of Article 1, it establishes the Senate. You know, you can see a pattern here. Uh, and it establishes two senators for every state. So it's not based on population. And at least initially, it states that those senators will be chosen by state governments, state legislatures. Um, that changes with the 17th Amendment. Senators now are directly elected. All right, 17th Amendment passed during the Progressive Era. Um, and then it states that, you know, they will serve for six-year terms. Now, the interesting piece here is that the Senate is a continuous body, meaning not all 100 senators are up uh, every, every six years. Um, they divide it. So, you know, every two years, one-third of the Senate is up. Okay, so then, you know, after the, obviously, the third time, you've gone through and cycled through all 100 senators. Now, you know, the difference then is that all 435 members of the House are up every two years. Okay, so again, the Senate serves for six-year terms, and every senator shall have one vote. Um, and then, you know, they discuss uh, the, the um, you know, the manner in which um, you know, you, you, how you qualify to be a senator. Very similar to that of the House. You have to be 30 years old in order to run for the Senate. You have to be a citizen of the United States for nine years. And you have to be a resident of the state in which you are, you are seeking representation. Now, as opposed to having a Speaker of the House, the Vice President of the United States is the President of the Senate just automatically, and shall have no vote, though, unless breaking a tie, okay? And that has happened, um, you know, most recently that took place with the nomination of Betsy DeVos to the, um, you know, the education secretary position in which Mike Pence had to break a 50-50 tie. That is a possibility when you have 100 senators or, you know, in, in any situation with the Senate, um, it's always going to be you know, a possibility of a tie. <clears throat> so um, the Senate also chooses this weird office called a president pro tempore. And it does show up in the line of succession, actually quite high up there. Um, and so, you know, that is actually a, a vice vice president position. I know it's kind of weird, um, but, you know, they are, in fact, uh, their only real power is that they serve as the presiding officer when the vice president is unable to do. And that position is usually granted to the senior most member of the majority party. Um, and so, you know, it, it, right now we have Republicans in um, the majority in the Senate, and the president pro tempore is a Republican, obviously, from the state of Iowa. His name is Chuck Grassley. And so Chuck Grassley is the senior most member of the Republican Party within the Senate. All right. And so um, continuing with the impeachment piece, the House, as we just learned a minute ago, has the power to level charges against an elected official. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. So the Senate acts as the jury. Okay. 
When sitting for that purpose, they shall be there shall be an oath of affirmation. So you have to take an oath. Um, when the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside. So yes, we did ha just have you know a, a the third time in history um, a president impeached, and that was Donald Trump um, two years ago. I believe it was two years ago, or about a year and a half maybe or so um, ago. And so Chief Justice John Roberts presided over that trial. And no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. In other words, 67 senators would have to vote in the, uh, the affirmation that, you know, the president or an elected official has committed a crime in order for them to be removed from office. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor trust or profit under the United States. And that's entirely up to the Congress when drawing up those articles of impeachment, whether or not an individual can run for election again. Um, so section four just mentions that, you know, the, the, the time, place, and manner of holding elections um, shall be up to each state uh, on, on, you know, electing senators and representatives. Every two years, we have what are called congressional elections in which all 435 members of the House are up as well as the one-third of the Senate. Um, you know, but the Congress, of course, as it mentions here, shall alter that. They can change that if they so choose. Um, and it also mentions that the Congress shall assemble at least once in every year. Of course, it does so, um, you know, much more uh, frequently now, um, you know, than it did then. Um, you know, but they do go into recess. They do have vacations, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, you know, Section 5, just essentially states um, that, you know, the Congress may have a minimum number of members present in order to meet. That's called a quorum. All right. And the quorum is usually 50 percent plus one. In order to have a quorum, you know, in order to do business, um, you have to have a quorum. And it also sets fines for members who do not show up. It says that the members may be expelled, that each house must keep a journal to record proceedings and votes, and that neither house can adjourn without the permission of the other. All right, so they have to decide together. Section 6 establishes that members of Congress will be paid. Um, you know, believe it or not, they're not paid a lot. They're paid under $200,000 a year, and that they cannot be detained while traveling to and from Congress, that they cannot hold any other office in the government while in the Congress. Section 7 details how a bill becomes a law. Okay, so, um, you know, all revenue bills, all bills dealing with money must begin in the House of Representatives. So if it's a tax bill, it has to begin in, begin in the House of Representatives. Um, you know, that uh, stimulus bill in which everybody got $1,200, that had to begin in the House of Representatives. And so, um, you know, of course, the way that it goes uh, and more detail here is that, you know, the, the bill um, gets drafted. It then gets sent to a committee uh, that, that corresponds with it, you know, topic-wise, um, in which it gets marked up. You know, amendments get made. There are subcommittees as well. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully it gets, fa it, it gets reported favorably out of committee. And then once it does, it goes to the full chamber for a vote. And then over to the other chamber for the exact same process, and then it goes to the president for their signature. And of course, the president may veto said bill. All right, but then there's a check on that. 
And that check is, of course, the fact then that it can go back to the Congress uh, for a two-thirds override. And then, all right, there's the idea of what is called a pocket veto, which I don't think has been used since Lincoln's time and Wade Davis. It might have been. I, I'd have to go back and take a look. But this is when a president, you know, may not want to take a very specific stance on something and decides to just let it die on the vine. In other words, right, you don't even veto it. You don't sign it into law. You just ignore it for 10 days and it automatically becomes a veto. That's the idea behind the pocket veto. All right, section eight then um, is a very fun section because it lists all the things that Congress has the power to do. Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imports, and excises, um, you know, and to pay debts. They have the power to borrow money. They have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, right? That's trade and such. Um, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, you know, who can become citizens, that whole process to coin money, to provide the punishment of counterfeiting the securities of coining, um, to establish post office and post roads, to promote the progress of science and useful arts, um, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. So when we do talk about Article 3, it only establishes a Supreme Court. It's entirely up to the court, Congress to establish um, federal courts. Uh, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas. To declare war, something that hasn't been done since World War II. And I know some of you are probably thinking, but Ashworth, you know, we've had wars since. Okay, Korean War was a United Nations war. The Vietnam War was an authorization of troops, as was the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Um, so we've never had an official, where we haven't had an official declaration of war since um, December 8th. 1941. It's kind of crazy to think about. Um, and so continuing on to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land of naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the union, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, Awful lot of talk about militia, to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever, over such district, as may be by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of the govern, government of the United States. Um, so in other words, you know, the, the, they can legislate. Uh, and then my favorite piece, and Alexander Hamilton's favorite piece, the necessary and proper slash elastic clause. Um, so it's all it's known by two names, the Necessary and Proper Clause and the Elastic Clause. In essence, what it says is, you know, we've listed all these things that Congress can do. But in addition, Congress can do whatever it feels is necessary and proper. Well, that could be anything, right? So, it, it you know, it was favored by Alexander Hamilton, a loose constructionist who said, you know, if it doesn't prohibit you from doing it, you can do it. It's a wide interpretation of what, you know, the, the expanse of federal power. Um, and that was exactly what it was designed to do. All right. Section nine then places certain limits on Congress, tells Congress what it can't do. Um, you know, certain legal items such as the suspension of habeas corpus, um, you know, giving people the ability to be um, heard in front of a court. Bills of attainder and ex post facto laws are prohibited. No law can be can give preference to one state over another. 
No money can ta be taken from the treasury except by duly passed law. All right, you can't just take money from the treasury. And no title of nobility, such as a prince or a marquis, will ever be established by the government. All right, there's that piece going back to the monarchy. You know, we didn't want lines, uh, you know, titles of nobility. Section 10 prohibits the states from doing several things as well. They cannot make their own money, um, you know, they or declare war on their own, um, or do most of the other things prohibited by Congress in Section 9. All right, they cannot tax goods from other states, nor can they have um, navies. All right, so it just, it, it it's that states' rights piece where we're making sure that we understand that, you know, the states don't have the same rights as Congress. It's the system of federalism. All right, so that is it um, for Article 1 in the preamble, and hopefully made a little bit more sense of it for you. And of course, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out.